0: Dave, thank you. That was beautiful. Dave's a mechanic up here, volunteering his time. I'm so grateful. I'm always amazed when people have gifting from God that usually don't go together. Mechanic and musician aren't a typical combination, are they, Dave? I actually play.
1: I actually play in church with one of your uh,
0: students and somebody you probably worked with, Gary Kiker. Oh, really? Oh, that's so cool. What church? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I did a men's retreat there about 300 years ago. It was a long time ago. But thank you. That was beautiful. That was beautiful. Which came first, the musician or the mechanic? Yes. Yes. (laughs) I just... All right. Love it. Well, thank you all for being here. I just love this group that gathers here in the evenings when you could be watching the sunset over Kings Canyon. I mean, I always feel like... I can never compete with that. but here you are. It's just amazing. I'm thankful you're here. And I'm grateful for what we're talking about this week. We're talking about the gospel, knowing the gospel, living the gospel, and preaching the gospel. And I, I just I want clarity on this because I actually think there is an increasing lack of clarity about what it means to be a Christian, what the good news is of Jesus Christ. And obviously, Being a Christian means every area of our life exhaustively is affected by the good news. It it has impact on everything in our lives. The way we view food and sex and entertainment and sunsets and music and mechanics and dating and marriage and child raising and everything. The way we view art, it's, it's all affected by the good news of Jesus Christ reconciling us to God and then seeking to glorify him in everything in our lives. And so, so because the implications are, are completely far-reaching and invade every area of our lives, there can be a breadth to the implications to the point where we can lose a sense of what Paul was talking about when he says to the Corinthians, I sought to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. Now, it's an interesting statement, isn't it? Because if you read just 1 and 2 Corinthians, and that's not the only correspondence he had with them, that's not the only preaching he had with them, it's not technically true that that's all he sought to know. He sought to know a lot with the Corinthians about marriage and about children and about how the church should function and how we should live as Christians in all areas of life, how we should view food and factions and all sorts of things. But he's making a relative statement, isn't he, when he says that. Right. That's what that means. He's saying, relatively speaking, it's as if I sought to know nothing except for Christ and him crucified. Because relative to that, everything else is peripheral. That's what he's saying. Everything else is, is on the periphery relative to that. Now, why would he say that? Let, let's just talk about that. Why would Paul make such a strong statement about the centrality of the atoning work of Christ in giving himself? Why would he say that? Let's talk. Why would he make such a radical statement that technically isn't true, but when you think about it relatively, it is? What's he getting at there? What's he saying, do you think? Yeah, it's so foundational. That's right. It, it's the absolute foundation. So you think about a building without the foundation, and the building doesn't exist. Right, Jess? Yeah, well, he, he gave him lots of Christian teaching. He just wanted to make sure the foundation was in place or else the rest can't stand, right? The rest isn't what it's supposed to be. So to think about marriage for Paul when he talks about marriage and singleness and all sorts of things to the Corinthians, to think about that independent of the gospel is incoherent to Paul. He can't even imagine trying to construct a Christian view of, say, marriage without the gospel at the core of it. It all collapses. And the only way things have the meaning they're intended to have as Christians is if they're grounded in the gospel. And and so I'm I'm very concerned about the day we live in and the clarity of the gospel, and what it means. And we talked last night about our beginning point of the gospel. But but let me just read a quote to you that helps you understand why I'm so concerned about this. I'm I'm not throwing my students under the bus at Biola because they're I don't fault them at all for this. But when they come to Biola, I will sometimes give my sophomores juniors usually they're already. Pastor freshman year, usually by the time they get to me. And, and I ask them basic Bible and theology questions. One of the questions I ask my students is, how would you define the gospel? And less than 30%, in my view, have a really good answer to that. It's all over the place in what, what they think about what the gospel is. And I think they're increasingly influenced by a very confused culture and even confused church. I think in our society today, we just I just got to preach to the high school students all last week, and the theme this summer is the book of Daniel, and it's being living as resilient Christians in an increasingly hostile culture. And I love the theme, I love how insightful and prophetic it is from the scriptures, but uh, it, there there's such a confusion about exactly what it is we're living for let me read a, a couple of quotations to you by a highly influential highly popular pastor now he would many would say he is the the most innovative compelling interesting creative popular preacher that would still call himself an evangelical. Here, here he was asked, um, how would you tweet the gospel? If, if you had to tweet the gospel, what would you say? Here's what he said. I would say that history is headed somewhere. The thousands of little ways in which you're tempted to believe that hope might actually be a legitimate response to the insanity of the world actually can be trusted. As the and the Christian story is that a tomb is empty and a movement has actually begun and has been present in some sense all along in creation. In all those times when your cynicism was at odds with an impulse within you that said that this little thing might be about something bigger, those tiny little slivers may in fact be connected to something really, really big. <laughs> now... Some of you are chuckling and, and I think, I think we, we need to realize here that, that some of you here, especially in the younger generation, may hear that and say, now that's deep. <laughs> now, that's sort of where we've gone. See, the older folks used to have a clarity about a lot of things that the younger folks don't and we can come across like a bunch of grumpy old men saying, back in my day, we didn't talk with all that gobbledygook, right? Well, we, I don't even know what he's saying, right? Now, I don't want to be simplistic. And that's what I think the younger generation appreciates about talking like this. It sounds like it's getting away from a simplistic approach. You know, there's a difference between simplicity and simplistic, yes? Simplicity means there may have, there has likely been a, a working through of complexity to the point of simplicity. One author once said that I wouldn't give a fig for simplicity before complexity, but I'd give the world for a simplicity on the other side of complexity. So we work through things not to make things more complicated, but to arrive at a beautiful simplicity. There's a difference between that and being simplistic, which means you don't work through the complexities of things so you can explain it to a five-year-old. And so there's a big difference there, but but I'm so concerned... Especially for so many of my students, who listen to what what I'm talking about as the gospel this week, and it doesn't sound sophisticated enough, (laughs) it doesn't sound sublime enough, it doesn't sound creative enough, and so that that's appealing to a younger generation today, and it's just amazing. Now, first of all, it's it's like three tweets. He did not stay within the 140-character rule of this, first of all, but we'll let that slide. He was asked about evangelicalism. Evangelicalism can be defined lots of different ways. I'm not stuck in that word, but it just means we're gospel people. The evangel, the the euangelion, this word that means good news. We're we're good news people. We're gospel people. And there are sociological, even sometimes more political aspects of that. but, But fundamentally, I think it should be a theological term that means we're about the gospel. And and this preacher I'm talking about, same guy, was asked, do you use that word for yourself? And here's what he says. This is what evangelical means to him. I embrace the term evangelical if by that we mean a belief that we together can actually work for change in the world, caring for the environment, extending to the poor generosity and kindness, a hopeful outlook, that is a beautiful sort of thing. Again, gutted in my view of a solid biblical core of what it means to be a Christian. That could be the Boy Scouts. And and so within those who still call themselves evangelicals and still say they believe the Bible is the word of God, there's a fuzziness and a confusion and an ambiguity that sounds really creative and sounds really sublime and sophisticated but can so easily be lacking clear biblical truth where, where we can say with Paul, I sought to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified at the core of the gospel and and so that is a driving motivation for me in in teaching on what we are this week and and actually all the time when I teach i never want to get far from the cross i never want to get far from jesus even when i'm talking i mean i've written things as as a theologian on a christian view of sports and play and competition i've written and published things on a christian view of humor and laughter and, and things like that, but, but even when I'm dealing with issues like that, I don't want to get very far from the gospel, because how can you laugh as a Christian if the gospel isn't the core of your laughter, and how can you play as a Christian? I mean, the theme of Hume they brought back is the gospel at play. We better have a good definition of play according to the gospel, right? I think Christians should play distinctively different than the non-Christians, that can look the same and feel the same in many ways. But for us, it should be an expression of our freedom in Christ. So, I do want to start. Was it Paul? Was it Paul? Who asked that great question? You were sitting back here. Was, it, was your name Paul? What's your name again? Beautiful blue eyes. Yes, you beautiful blue eyes. Yes. Aren't they beautiful, everybody? Yeah. Are they not? <laughs> My name is Terry. Terry. That's right. Terry, thank you. Terry. Terry asked a great question. Does not Terry have beautiful eyes? Am I allowed to say that? Yes. um, um, Is your wife here, Terry? She's not. I bet your eyes were a big part of that. So anyway, um, um, Terry asked a great question last night about something I said, I think Sunday morning. Boy, Preaching in temporary communities can be a challenge, because when you when you say something not clear in a local church, you've got maybe years, decades possibly to clear it up. Here, it, it, it takes guys like Terry to help me realize I wasn't clear about something. He asked a great question, because I said Sunday morning that in the New Testament, salvation is a, pres, a past, present, and future reality. And we talked about that briefly last night, but I, I just wanted to make sure that that was very clear so sotira this greek word in new testament is is used past present and future in reference to a believer and i I just put three verses up here so salvation biblically is a past reality for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it's a gift of god not of works lest anyone should boast now now evangelicals protestants who emphasize the gospel tend to live there in that past reality because we have recognized this is a, a finished, accomplished work that Jesus has done that we benefit from in our justification. The past reality of salvation means that we are free from the guilt of sin. No longer carrying any of that guilt because the righteousness of Christ has been given to us. That's a done deal. Finished. But then that leads to the present reality of God's continuing saving work in our lives in passages like 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The power of God is freeing us from the power of sin in our lives. We've been set free. We're no longer slaves to sin, and we are being saved by God from that power of sin in our lives. That's what sanctification is. And then there's a future orientation, the future tense of salvation in passages like Romans 5, 9, having been now justified by his blood, We shall be saved from the wrath through him. So there's the future orientation of it. So there's a hope aspect of it. There's a faith aspect of the past and applying what's in the past to the present and overcoming sin in our lives. Now increasingly in our sanctification. But then we have a future hope that on the day of judgment, we will be saved from the wrath to come. It's not something we need to be concerned about because we're confident of that future salvation that awaits as well. So it's important to realize that, that there's a, it's a broad term talking about these past, present, and future aspects of salvation for us. Yes? Amen. Good, Terry? All right, man. All right, beautiful. Okay, so what I, what I want to do tonight is walk through the, the gospel in a way that I think is clear and corrective in some ways and, and also spoken about in a way that people who have no theological terminology or categories can understand it. And it comes out of a gospel tract I've been using for decades now called Two Ways to Live, the choice we all face. Now, I think one of the reasons I find this so effective is because this Two Ways to Live tract is is created by a, a great evangelism ministry called Matthias Media. I have no stock in the ministry at all, but... I have found them incredibly helpful. And here's why I think they're so helpful, especially for our day. They're Australians. Now, why would I think that's helpful? Because Australian, uh, Aust- Australia, the, the nation, not the indigenous people, but the country of Australia. Do you know who started Australia? Criminal. Pr- criminals, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> criminals. England stacked criminals on ships and shipped them off to Australia. The country was started by a bunch of prisoners, a bunch of criminals. And so, very unlike the nation of the United States, it wasn't started by a bunch of Puritans seeking religious freedom from England. Interesting, both ships left from England, the ones to Australia and the ones to here, some seeking religious freedom, the Puritans, and some seeking life in a penitentiary in Australia. But we, we... we were founded by Purit, and so there's this, this biblical, theological, Christian uh, structure to the society that we've lived in our whole lives, and that's deteriorating increasingly over time. And so for a long time, those of us who seek to understand the gospel and communicate the gospel can assume a lot, in the, even in the church, that, that people really understand things and understand the Bible. I talked about in chapel this theme of Daniel when when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown in the fiery furnace, and and they say that our God will save us. But if not, we're still not going to bow to your idols. That was awesome. And and I talked about during the Battle of Dunkirk in World War II. Many of you are more familiar with it than you were before the movie came out. Yes, Battle of Dunkirk, uh, a three-word telegram a cable came back from a navy admiral at the battle of dunkirk when 250,000 troops seemed destined to death because they were pinned in with no way to escape in time before the germans attacked this this navy admiral sent a three-word message back to the nation and the net, the message was just but if not straight out of daniel Talking about this evil power that was was going to send them to their death, and they said, "We're not going to bow. We are not going to surrender. We're going to go down fighting." Right? And depending on even God, I mean, he brought theology, in, and everybody knew what they were talking about. And the BBC grabbed a hold of it and they put it out, and, it, and it, it encouraged the whole nation and the it was in the navy. It was amazing that a three word message. There was a biblical literacy that the people in the nation understood to the point where a three-word cable that came back inspired the whole nation, and they ended up evacuating most of those troops because, you know, private people went with their boats and got them out of there. It was amazing. But you think if that went out to there, like, what in the world is he talking about? As the Titanic was going down, you know the, the band, the main song they struck up, the orchestra? Oh, God, our help in ages past, our help for years to come. Our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. And people on the ship were singing it together. We've lost that sort of common biblical uh, and worshipful kind of culture. And so we can't assume anything, and Australians have never been able to assume any biblical literacy, any theological depth, any theological terminology. And so, so these guys have come up with a way of expressing the gospel that have all these core biblical ideas, but in ways that aren't assuming anything. <laughs> Starting from scratch, basically. It's one of the things I appreciate about it. Plus, I'll also point out a couple of things I especially appreciate. And I'm not saying this is the way and you have to do it this way. It always bothers me when ministries get their way and then any other way is somehow faulty. Right? I, I grew up in Campus Crusade in college uh, using the four spiritual laws. And you, anybody know what law one is? God loves you and has a wonderful plan, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's right. Um, and I use that to great effect. However, I think you can use the, the steps of peace with God, you can use the bridge illustration, the way of the master has their way, and they think it's the way. And so, um, yes, I, I've been using it. But, you know, I think today, if you say to somebody, God loves you, loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, you can't assume they have any common, similar definition of God, of love, of you, of life right i don't think we can assume anything so you can say you could talk to people about god and they may say oh yeah i believe in god i love god but they mean something very different than what you do certainly not the god and father of our lord jesus christ and so i don't think we should assume almost anything anymore and so so i I just want to show you the the six points of this gospel tract, and then we'll just talk about it here's the first one can you read that in the back who can't, who can't read that? Ah, I was going to say it might be an age issue, but we got young people in the back who are raising their hands. Um, Nolan, there's nothing we can do about that at this point, is there? All right, well, I'm going to read it to you. So you just listen to my soothing voice. Read, read this to you if you can't see it. Here we go. Here's, here's the first of six points really, five points which are the gospel, and then a challenge to realize there are two ways to live. So God's the loving ruler of the world. He made the world. He made us rulers of the world under him. I love where this gospel presentation starts. It starts where the Bible starts, with creation. See, I think that's really important. When you used to say God to people, built into that was creator. But now God can be a force. It can be a rhythm to the universe. It can be all sorts of things. That, that guy, um, that pastor, well, his name's Rob Bell. I don't Um, he was being interviewed by Oprah a couple of years ago, and she said, what's the one thing you'd want everyone to know? And he said, that we're all going to be okay. And I immediately thought of the prophets denouncing the false prophets because they were saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And so, so... Starting with creation is so important, and we'll get to why in a bit. And here's how it unpacks it, right? No assumptions about theological terminology, big words, nothing. The first point of the Christian message is that God's a charge of the world. He's the ruler, the supreme president, the king. Unlike human rulers, however, God always does what's best for his subjects. He's the kind of king you'd like to be ruled by. God rules the world because he made the world like a potter with his clay. God fashioned the world into just the shape he wished. With all its amazing details, he made it and he owns it. He also made us. So here we have a fundamental theology proper, a fundamental doctrine of God in those first two paragraphs. Now we move to a fundamental doctrine of humanity. Because the gospel is all about reconciling God and humanity. We better understand who God is and who we are. Because those are the two subjects being reconciled, right? Look, Nolan, what did you do, my man? (laughs) Nolan is a tech whiz. Yes, Nolan. Yeah. (laughs) I told Nolan last night that my elementary school was Nolan's school. I think this is destiny for us to work together, Nolan. Yes. Yes. Thank you, brother. I don't know how you did that, but thank you. Um, So so now we move to an anthropology. He also made us. God created people or something like himself and put them in charge of the world to rule it, to care for it, to be responsible for it and to enjoy its beauty and its goodness. He appointed humanity to supervise and look after the world, but always under his own authority, honoring and obeying his directions. What I love about this is that is three months of my Theology One class that I teach at Biola. We do we do God and humanity for about three months. And, and I love that it gets to that. And if you don't find define God well and you don't define humans well in an age where there's radical autonomy, where people think they get to define everything for themselves, it's important to just start with these biblical categories right in Genesis, where the Bible starts. See if God's the creator, we answered him, right? If he made us, it puts everything in its right perspective. We put God in his place, his proper place, and then we're in our proper place. And then as you'll see when we get to sin, you know, when you say to people, you're a sinner, like you start the gospel there, well, it's like a hard place to start, right? You're a sinner. That's the way of the master starts, the Ten Commandments, right? And I love those guys, but, but they start with, you're guilty, right? But what do people say? No, I'm not. I'm actually a pretty nice person. And I'm a nice guy. I can think of 50 people right now, I'm way better than. Right? That's why I think reality television is so popular, because it gives us people to compare ourselves to and we can feel good about ourselves. Right? Like you watch hoarders and you're like, my house is a mess, but it ain't that bad, right? And and so you know, so so it starts here and then it goes here. Uh, okay, Nolan, go back to the previous one, please. You can't? Is that what he said? Oh, so once we switch, we're stuck. Um, can you go back to that one? There we go. So, so God's in his proper place. We're in our proper place. And there's a positive start to the gospel then. It's saying, we're, we're like God. There's all sorts of human deification here, and we don't want to go there. But we do want to go to the awesomeness of creation. The gospel really starts with a great creator God. And then we find out, that the song from the Lego movie is actually true. Everything is awesome. And human beings, sorry to get that in your head for three weeks now, but, and the fact is, human beings are the most awesome thing in all of creation. So we start with a really positive start to the gospel. Not you're a sinner, but a definition of God as the creator, and the definition of us is created. And we can say, look, you're created by an awesome God like him. You're like God, more like God than anything that's made. And we can say, and I think he made you for a relationship with himself to glorify him with your life. And then you can say, so if that is the purpose for your life, how's that going? See how different that is than you're a sinner because they'll say, I never killed anybody. But that's not really the point, is it? I'm not saying there aren't ethical categories to understanding sin, but there's a relational category to understanding sin more than anything else. Because sin can only be defined if you start with a positive understanding of what we're intended to be. If you're telling me I'm not what I intended to be, you better start with what I am intended to to be if I'm ever going to understand that I'm not living up to it. That I'm not... Living up to the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does that even mean? It means we're not glorifying God with our lives and our sinful fallen condition as the created one. So, um, beautiful positive starting point. Nolan, could, could you go back to that first, first of that diagram over here? Uh, let's Maybe we should just stay with what we had. There we go. Oh, look, he got a close above of it, and it's, a little blurry, it's all my bad guys. I gave these to Nolan. But see the diagram. I think that this is a simple good diagram. Here's the earth. Here are human beings. There's Terry with his beautiful blue eyes there. <laughs> Terry just living living on on the earth, ruling and reigning over the earth as God's agent of fruitfulness and multiplying and 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 Fulfilling our creation mandate in this, but under God's throne, under his crown, under his authority. And I I think if we jump into John 3.16 without laying this out for people, we're going to start way too downstream. I love where the gospel starts here. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you... Created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. This Revelation 4.11 verse is, I think, a great place to start the gospel. It just puts everything in its proper perspective. It puts God where he belongs as the creator. It puts us as where we belong as the awesome creations of God under his authority. His glory is the goal of all of it. You see, I said last night, God is the gospel. So often, the gospel we preach is a gospel that's all about us. Are you fulfilled? Do you have good relationships? Are you hopeless? Do you lack meaning? Do you lack direction? Do you have anxiety? Do you have struggles? All legitimate things, all effects of our fallen condition, but not our main problem, symptoms of our main problem. I think so often we make the symptoms the issue and we get an anthropocentric gospel, a human-centered gospel. That's all about us. And you can make an amazing career in ministry if that's where you camp. Because that's where we like to live, in a human-centeredness. The the largest, most affluent churches in the country preach a profoundly human-centered gospel. Biggest ones in Houston. And... And, and it's all about God's got your back, he's for you. Even if you listen to a lot of Christian radio music, it's God's for you, God's with you. Not the cross, not the glory of God, not reconciliation, overcoming our sin, but just God's your self-help coach. It's really what it gets reduced to. And there's something we love about that, but it misses the grandeur and the glory in the biblical core of the gospel. I don't think we tend to realize just how human-centered christianity has become in our culture and we like it in a very fundamental way all right nolan let's just leave them the way we were if we could if that's even possible at this point now that i've led you down this primrose path of path of destruction nolan so if we could just leave them the way they were i think just reading it for those who can't see maybe didn't bring their glasses i don't know so so that's where we start here's point two We all reject the ruler God because it said in the last one, "This, this all sounds rather ideal, doesn't it? God ruling the world, us ruling under him, everything working out well under this benevolent supreme king and us serving him, but everything's not going well, is it? We all reject the ruler God by trying to run our life our own way without him, but we fail to rule ourselves or society or the world. Just watch the news for 90 seconds and tell me that's not the situation we're in. The sad truth is that from the very beginning, men and women everywhere have rejected God by doing things their own way. We all do this. We don't like someone telling us what to do or how to live, least of all God, and so we rebel against him in lots of different ways. We ignore him, just get on with our own lives. And I think that ignoring God is really important because very few people would ever see themselves as a God-hater, right? It says, yeah, I'm not religious, but I don't hate God. I don't deserve his wrath. And I think it's important to realize that ignoring God is ultimately no different than shaking your fist in his face. Actually, what would you prefer? I come from a family that writes you off if they tick you off. If you tick them off. Like you're done. Maybe for good. At least for years. They won't talk. They freeze you out. At least if you're cussing at me, I exist. Right? At least if you hate my guts, I'm getting some response from you, right? There's some value you see in me enough to get angry with me, right? But if you just are completely writing me off, ignoring me as if I don't even exist, ignoring isn't better than hating. It's actually just a different way of hating. In some ways, more disrespectful. <laughs> and so, so that ignoring is a really important point there. And and so we ignore God and just get on with our own lives. Or we disobey his instructions for living in this world, in his world. Or we shake our puny fists in his face and tell him to get lost. However we do it, we're all rebels. Because we don't live God's way, we prefer to follow our own desires and run things our own way without God. This rebellious, self-sufficient attitude is what the Bible calls sin. See how well it defines things in the Bible without assuming anybody has a good definition of it? The trouble is, in rejecting God, we make a mess, not only of our own lives, but of our society and the world. The whole world is full of people bent on doing what suits them and not following God's ways. We all act like little gods with our own crowns competing with one another. The result is misery. The suffering and justice we see around us all go back to our basic rebellion against God. And here's a great verse to get... The idea of sin across, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who who seeks God, all have turned away. This passage from Romans 3 is so helpful to me because it completely destroys any self-righteousness in our gospel presentation, right? We're not saying you're a sinner. We're saying we're all in a sinful condition. We all are rebels, all of us. And it's only by the grace of God I'm not in that rebellious state anymore. No self-righteousness here. No, I'm better than you at all. I can completely relate to a rebel against God. And then point three says God in his holiness judges sin. God won't let us rebel forever. His punishment for rebellion is death and judgment. God cares enough about humanity to take our rebellion seriously. I love that. He cares enough about us, you know. Uh, a lot of children would prefer their parents let them do whatever they want and never discipline them and no, never show them the way of wisdom. And An unloving parent will do exactly that. But a parent who truly loves their children will discipline, will care deeply about how they live and what they do and don't and don't do and so god takes us so seriously because we're made in his image if we're animals he's not going to care about our our standing before him whether we worship him or not whether we glorify him with our lives intentionally he calls us to account for our actions because it matters to him that we how we treat him and other people so poorly in other words he won't let the rebellion go on forever the sentence god passes against us is entirely just because he gives us exactly what we ask for In rebelling against God, we're saying to him, go away. I don't want you telling me what to do. Leave me alone. And this is precisely what God does. His judgment on rebels is to withdraw from them, to cut them off from himself permanently. But since God's the source of life and all good things, being cut off from him means death and hell. God's judgment against rebels is an everlasting, godless death. This is a terrible thing to fall under the sentence of God's judgment. It's a prospect we all face since we're all guilty of rebelling against him. Great verse for this. Man is destined to die once and after that to face the judgment. We tend to, in our day, so not want to be associated with what we call hellfire and brimstone Christians who would just have one drum and it's judgment and they carry signs at the end of the Rose Bowl parade, right? Right? And, and we're, we so don't want to be associated with those folks that we often shy away from the reality of judgment. But it's interesting. In this day where justice is talked about a lot, don't you want a God who cares about justice? Do you want a God who doesn't care about evil? Do you want a God who doesn't care about, about rebellion against him and destructive behavior in this world? Can you really live in a world where judgment isn't going to actually come about someday? And so we, we rest in that, and we love this about God. And, and it says, is, is that it then? Are we all destined for death and everlasting ruin? If not for God's own miraculous intervention, we would be. God's justice sounds hard, but God won't let us rebel forever. Uh, no, but, number four, here we go. Because of his love, God sent his son into the world, the man Jesus Christ. Jesus always lived under God's rule. Yet by dying in our place, he took our punishment and brought forgiveness. Because of his great love, and this is the heart of the whole gospel, people. Because of his great love and generosity, God did not leave us to suffer the consequences of our foolish rebellion. He did something to save us. He sent his own divine son into the world, become a man, Jesus of Nazareth. Unlike us, Jesus didn't rebel against God. He always lived under God's rule. He always did what God said and so did not deserve death or punishment. Yet Jesus did die. Although he had the power of God to heal the sick, walk on water, and even raise the dead, Jesus allowed himself to be executed on a cross. Why? The Bible rings with the incredible news that Jesus died as a substitute for rebels like us. The debt we owed God, Jesus paid by dying in our place. He took the full force of God's justice on himself so that forgiveness and pardon might be available to us. And so what I love about this is it talks both about Jesus' righteousness... And his sacrificial death for us. He didn't rebel against God. He always lived under God's rule, always did what God said. We rightly emphasize Jesus' sacrifice sacrificial death for us, but it's equally important we emphasize his righteousness on our behalf. Jesus didn't die for our sins in the manger. That would have been more efficient in some ways but it wouldn't accomplish what it needed to because we need his active obedience to replace our disobedience as well as his sacrificial death to pay the penalty for our sin. And this gets to both of those realities of Jesus as our substitute, his righteousness and his atoning death for us. And this is the verse we started off with. Christ died for our sin. Oh, no, before that, there we go. Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, To bring you to God. This verse packs in both his righteousness and his sacrificial death for us. And the goal of it is not just forgiveness and righteousness, but forgiveness and righteousness so we can be brought to God. That's the goal. We can't leave that off either. We don't just get ourselves in a better state, we get ourselves restored in our relationship with our Creator. And you see, this is Jesus here taking our place in his obedience, his righteousness, and his sacrificial death paying the penalty for our sin, and obeying in place of our disobedience. Always submitting to the will of the Father, beginning with the incarnation and being sent, and continuing throughout his entire life, 33 years in our place. And then point five is another point that often gets left out of the gospel that we should not leave out of the gospel. Let's not leave Jesus in the tomb or on the cross. Let's make sure he's a risen Savior. Let's not wait till Easter to talk about this. It's core to the gospel. God raised Jesus to life again as the ruler of the world. Jesus conquered death, now gives new life, and will return to judge. God accepted Jesus' death as payment in full for our sins and raised him from the dead. The risen Jesus is now what humanity was always meant to be, God's ruler of the world. As God's ruler, Jesus has also been appointed God's judge of the world. The Bible promises that one day he'll return to call us all to account for our actions. In the meantime, Jesus offers us new life, both now and eternally. Now our sins can be forgiven through Jesus' death, and we can make a fresh start with God, no longer as rebels, but as friends. In this new life, God himself comes to live within us by his Spirit. We can experience the joy of a new relationship with God. What's more, when we're pardoned through Jesus' death, we could be quite sure that when Jesus does return to judge, we will be accepted, acceptable to him. The risen Jesus will give us eternal life, not because we've earned it, but because he's died in our place. And here's the verse. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection, not just the death, Not just the life, but the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So beautiful passage to include in this. It's amazing to me how long before I really thought about the resurrection's place in the gospel, I left Jesus in the tomb. And so he sort of becomes this historical figure who gave a great sacrifice of his life, but he ends up really being not much different than a marine who dives on a grenade to save his friends from death. He's a past historical figure, and I, I started to realize that one of, the reason, one of the reasons we Christians can lack a vibrancy in our Christian life is because Jesus is a historical figure to us, not a risen, ruling, reigning, mediating king for us. That we have an ongoing relationship with and talk to as if he's still alive because he is still alive and with us. And he said he'll never leave us or forsake us. And so then it's important to get to the next final point. We can't just leave it hanging out there. We need to realize there are two ways to live. Our way or God's way. Our way, we reject the ruler God. God's way, we submit to Jesus as our ruler. Our way, we run our lives our own way. God's way, we rely on Jesus' death and resurrection. The result is of our way, condemnation by God and facing death and judgment. God's way leads to forgiveness by him and eternal life. We can continue in our rebellion against God and try to run our lives our own way without him. Sadly, this is the option many people persist in. The end result is that God gives us what we ask for and deserve. He condemns us for our rejection of his rightful rule over our lives. We not only have to put up with the messy consequences of rejecting God here and now, but we face the dreadful prospect of an eternity of separation from him without life or love or relationship. For those of us who realize that our situation is hopeless, there's a lifeline. If we turn back to God and appeal to mercy, trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection, everything changes. For a start, God wipes our slate clean. He accepts Jesus' death as payment for our sins and freely and completely forgives us. He pours out his own spirit into our hearts and grants us a new life that stretches past death and into forever. We're no longer rebels, but part of God's own family as his adopted sons and daughters. Now we live with Jesus as our ruler. The two ways to live could not be more different. And they present to you, the reader, with some choices. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son does not have life, for God's wrath remains on him. It's so important. I had so many students ask me last week questions about, yeah, but what about my really nice grandma who's never trusted Jesus, or what about people who who are just really, and it's just really hard for them to realize the reality of the two ways we can live our lives, either having and trusting Jesus or not is what it boils down to. I love this because it, it doesn't leave the gospel hanging out there and giving people maybe the impression that they can just sort of say, oh, that's cool, or that's interesting, or that, I'm, I'm glad you found your meaning in that. It's really important that we, we, we say to people, so how about you? Which way are you living? Which way have you decided to live? What have you done with Jesus? I don't think just testimony, as helpful as that can be, it can be helpful to say, God bless you to someone. I'm not minimizing that God can use that sort of thing. But when we talk about the gospel and and presenting it to people and understanding ourselves, it should have conversion in mind and a challenge to repent and believe in Jesus included in it. All right, this track then goes on to give advice to someone who, has trusted Jesus, getting involved in the church, getting in in scripture. I have used this so many times. Sometimes I've been changing a tire in the pouring rain on the side of the freeway, and I don't have time to go through even a portion of this, so I just say, I stopped because I'm a Christian. And if you don't know what that means, this tells you what the Bible says a Christian is. Read it if you have a minute. I'll see you later. And I leave it with them. And our church information is on the back. You can get a hold of me that way. And it's just been so helpful. I remember one time, I sat next to this guy named George, and his wife Mildred was on the aisle seat, and I was in the window, and I went through this whole thing with George on an airplane, and he was sort of interested, not very, but I kept noticing that his wife Mildred was trying to act like she wasn't listening, but was really listening. I could just tell she was just trying to not get me to engage with her at all. And so I just finally said, George, you know, why don't you go through that when you get it? He said, all right, and he put it in his pocket, and he went to sleep. And I see out of the peripheral, Mildred goes, and she takes the track from George's pocket, turns her back to me, and goes through it for about 20 minutes. It's so cool how God can use something like this in getting these key components of the gospel on the table. All right, comments, questions, thoughts, anything you want to talk about? Oh, what I really oh like amen. about that USC
1: is that um, I think that it uh, immediately addresses what I feel is the new religion, and that's environmentalism. Ah yes because Steve right it Steve yeah, Steve, yeah. It, it elevates the creation. Yes. It reminds us that God created it, <laughs> that's and right. we've been given stewardship over it. That's right. But we're not to worship the creation. Romans 1 we're That's supposed right. to worship the creator So see, I, I really like that you're so especially now like 20 years ago 30 years ago this may not have, have been even more, as effective as I
0: think it I is I think you're right and, and so you're so right the doctrine of creation helps us see everything rightly so nothing in the world should become an idol to us but a gift from God that he's glorified through that we enjoy for his glory including the environment i just read something yesterday that basically talked about our environmental problems as the solution is simply freeing the world from humans (laughs) we're the problem and and there are even some kind of on the edge environmentalists who are saying we should exterminate ourselves for the good of the environment And, and and so you're right and so we're stewards we care for it. we don't abuse it see that's the other piece of it too Because we're stewards of the garden, charged by God to be the gardeners under his ultimate gardening, and, you know, Donna's doing a seminar on Wednesdays, my wife, on trees in the Bible, and kids are loving it. The high school kids came in last week, a whole bunch of guys came walking in the back going, trees, 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 trees. It's been fantastic. And and it's appreciating trees in the place where the greatest trees in the world are, in a theological, biblically-centered way. And so that's exactly right. We see the environment correctly. We see everything rightly when God's a creator and we're created under his authority. Beautiful. Thanks, Steve. What else? Comments or questions? Thoughts? Disagreements?
2: Um, so I'm a really, really well-trained evangelical Christian, and we always have the big repentance piece in yes. everything that we've been taught. And when I became a Christian, I yielded to Christ, and I hadn't been to church. It's a long story, but I don't think I actually even heard the word repentance or mm. what that was for a long time. Mm. But So in this thing, how, how would what? Right,
0: so they use yes and no language. To get at that idea. We say no to our autonomy. We say no to our self-rule. We know, we say no to seeing ourselves as little gods. That's the repentance piece. And we say yes to God and his ways and Jesus. It's just trying to put it in terminology that gets at the core idea behind repentance and saving faith. So they even choose the word submit to God instead of faith because people have all kinds of ideas what faith is. Man, talk about an overused term that is meaningless now. I mean, everybody has faith, right? I got to have faith. Faith got me through this. Faith is very important to me. He's a man of faith. We need people of faith in the entertainment industry. Faith in what? Does it matter at all? (laughs) Or do I just need this thing called faith inside of me bubbling around? And so faith can mean almost anything, but that yes and no, reject, or submit... To God is 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 getting at that sort of language. I completely agree. Repentance, turning from sin and self to Jesus alone, is vital. But they get at it with just yes and no language: yes to God and no to myself, and my self-determination is a little god. Good. Yeah. Tell me your name. John. John. That's right. Yeah. Thank you, John. I really like
1: the six. But it seems like there should almost be a seventh because like you said at the beginning of the talk with the results of six being eternal life and forgiven by god those are amazing focuses for afterward but like you said at the beginning of the talk our entire lives are changed Mm -hmm. when we accept christ Mm -hmm. the way we eat the way we interact with our friends and family and all of that and i think that like so many people are looking for that life transformation, the results of it, not just when I die, what happens, but the beauty that happens with Christ. What would your number seven be?
0: Yeah, well, you could sort of say what they have in the back. So now what? You've decided to go God's way. And so in the back, they say, now, now, what does it mean to actually do that? And they talk about uh, responding by in prayer and submitting to Jesus. In trusting Jesus throughout your days, and it gets very specific about incorporating this new reality of your life into your daily life in spiritual disciplines. I mean, that's how we work out the sanctifying new life in Christ. We walk in newness of life by availing ourselves to the means of grace that bring that about for us. So, go ahead.
1: The most beautiful thing, being saved and having that salvation, but the way you see the world yes. is transformed. Like yeah. there's yeah, a yeah. newness and that peace that surpasses all understanding. In the midst of those storms, like how do you explain that beauty? Because it seems like that's what people are so hungry for. Yeah. It's yeah, not just true. that the world is dead and dying, but that um, there is new creation that we're invited into co-create. with. Yes,
0: yes. Um, yeah, I would say this is the reestablishment of the relationship where that then begins. And what we we are longing for is finally brought to us. But but this is that core reconciliation that begins that ability to fulfill the creation mandate of rule over and subdue, be fruitful and multiply and enjoy God's creation in a God-glorifying way. This is the reconciliation of it. Um, so when I... When I officiate weddings, which I've done many, many times, um, I, I, I I talk about what marriage is, and, and then they begin that journey of working that out in all the various ways that happens. But yeah, that, that's a good point. But this is the beginning point of then living that out, the creation mandate and fulfilling that. Yeah. And then we'll go here. There's two more. How would you cultivate a lifestyle of evangelism when um, you know maybe 50% of the time the person might say, well, I'm choosing to reject, and that's the way it is, yeah. shove off. Well, I, I always think, when I think of evangelism, I think first and foremost of prayer. Ian e. Bounds said, never go to men about God until you go to God about men. And so to ground our, our efforts in ministry in, in general and in evangelism, it's got to be grounded in prayer, recognizing our utter dependence on God to bring about any change in a human heart. And, and then we prayerfully go in an ongoing prayerful way in dependence on God, asking the Spirit to work as only He can. I think that's got in praying ahead of time for God to use us in those ways and intentionally thinking about what that may look like today. And we'll talk more about this in the, in the days to come this week. One more question here? Yes.
2: Uh, Hi. Hi. Um, uh, You kind of, what you just said relates to what I want to ask you, but um, I I will hope you go a little farther. Um, I'm a little bit cut to the heart um, by kind of two things that you touched on. One is the main thing that you were talking about, the gospel. Um, You approached it through the lens of attract, right, and evangelism and and talking to people about the gospel. Um, But you also touched on, on, um, like, a self-centered view of the gospel. And those two things combined um, for me to uh, very much convict me about, um, like, how I walk with God um, and how I see growing with God it being a very self-centered thing and not a, I want to share this. And, and, um, the thing that I can't like stop thinking about is my brother who has walked away from the faith. Mm. And I, it like just hit me that I haven't done anything about that. Mm. And so I guess what I really want to ask you is how would you approach this with somebody who knows it all already?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, and those are the folks that are probably the hardest ones to talk to, who have the information. I actually find it even harder to talk to someone who hasn't walked away, but you just get a sense of, this, this hasn't really gotten into your heart, has it? And you talk to those people, oh yeah, born again, walked, oh I actually went to Hume Lake one time and I stood up on a Thursday night, and oh yeah, and, and you, you just get the sense that, but Jesus isn't everything to you, he's not your life. How does this really affect your life? Oh, in every way, it affects my life. But you, what, what does that look like? And, and they can't even describe it. And those are the really challenging folks when they yes you to death. But you have a sense that this hasn't really invaded their hearts. But, but people who have walked away who know the information, and especially have a long-term relationship with, like, with your brother, I think your joy of, in Christ and your treasuring of him will be a lead apologetic for you in your life with him and, and that will be attractive to him in a way that then you can back up with your words and talk about Jesus as the lover of your soul who is everything to you. And, and like someone who loves the Dodgers or good pizza, when they talk about it in a way where it's obvious they love this deeply, well, Jesus even infinitely more so. And so I think a life of treasuring Christ and then words that back that up is the key, but grounding it in prayer really praying is is the key to, to the whole ministry effort in general what's your brother's name adam let me pray lord i thank you for the power of the gospel that it's the power to save lord i saw you grab a hold of the hearts and lives of so many young people on thursday and lord i know that many of those lives will never be the same just like all of us who are here tonight who we're gripped by Jesus and transformed by the Spirit's work. Lord, we pray that you would help us to um, go deeper into the gospel and be about the good news in our own lives and in the lives of other people that we seek to love well and help by pointing them to you. So we thank you for, um, for Adam. We pray you'd be working in his life using the, the truth that he knows and showing him how desperately he needs a Savior and that Jesus is that Savior who did everything he needed him to do. And so we pray you do a powerful work in his life, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.